I'm excited to be here. It's been a great morning thus far. In fact, I wanted to, I had two sets of devotions today. My first set of devotions, I read some in Exodus and some in Luke. My second set of devotions, I read the New York Daily News and the New York Post websites. <laughs> All about those whining Giants fans. I'm not sure which was more exciting, Exodus or reading the New York newspapers. But we're not talking about the Giants today and the Eagles. We are talking about three relationships. And as Carlos mentioned last week, three relationships helps us understand the big picture of what God's calling us to. The gospel changes our relationship with God, changes our relationship with other Christians, changes our relationship with non-Christians. Well, what does that mean? How do we progress? What's going on? That's what this is all about. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about and I've heard through the years is there are lots of diff different methods to do discipleship. You don't have to do three relationships on our 15 rhythms, but discipleship is non-negotiable. The methods may change. The principle is not. In fact, a friend of mine years ago said this. If we, if we fail at making disciples, we fail. Jesus said, go and make disciples. If we fail at making disciples, we fail. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the rhythm of Scripture. Now, Scripture comes in the God part of the three relationships, but Scripture and prayer, they're a little different than the other rhythms. It's almost like they're the two primary rhythms. I often think Scripture and prayer are kind of like breathing, right? You have to breathe in order to live. We breathe in, right? We inhale scripture. We breathe out prayer. All the other rhythms are kind of dependent on that. The relationships are dependent on breathing in from God and then breathing out to God, prayer and scripture. Now you have the storyline up on the board because you need to know that the Bible is a big story. Now we're using the gospel of Mark as kind of the well from which we're drawing um, the things we're talking about in this series. But you need to understand, Mark comes kind of at the end of the story. There are six acts to the story. God creates, God is rejected, God promises. God appears, that's where Mark shows up. God sends, that's the act we're living in, and God restores. But you have to know something about what's gone before in order to know what act Jesus came into and what act we're living in now. I was thinking about that the other day. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Kim and I watched The Glass Onion. Have you ever watched that movie on Netflix, The Glass Onion? Now, I'm not going to be a spoiler and tell you all about it, but I do want you to know this. If you watch the last 20 minutes of The Glass Onion, you're going to be confused and have no idea what's going on. You're not going to know how Miles got started. You're not going to know about Alpha. You're not going to know what happened to Andy and why Helen's there instead of Andy and who the heck is Blanc and how did he get invited to the island. You see... Lots of people today, even people that should know better, say, well, we don't need to know a whole lot and think much about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's 75% of the Bible. If you start reading in the middle or at the tail end, you're not going to know what's gone before. We're going to see that in living color today as we come to the beginning of Mark's gospel. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or whatever you use, turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Mark's gospel and you're going to see that what Mark says is completely dependent on the 75% of the Bible that's come before. If you don't know anything about Genesis through Malachi, 
you're going to be confused concerning who Jesus is and what he came to do. So here we go, verse 1. In the beginning, or the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I want to stop there. That's verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That verse is the outline of Mark chapter 1. He's then going to talk about good news. He's going to talk about Messiah. He's going to talk about Son of God. That's going to be our outline today. Oh, by the way, Mark 1.1 is the outline of his entire gospel. The beginning part of the gospel is about Jesus, the Messiah. He shifts gears in the middle and winds up with Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, suffering servant. He gives us the outline right at the beginning. All right, now I'm going to read the first 11 verses, like I said. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee came and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. The good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, we're going to walk right through that. First of all, good news. Now, good news is just a translation of the word gospel, right? Good news. And you ever notice that we use some words often, particularly words at church, words like they're in the Bible, but we rarely define them. I think one of the most misunderstood words in all of the Bible is gospel or good news. And I'm going to show that to you now. First of all, good news is news. Now, when you watch the news, you're hearing what happened, something that will affect you, something that has affected you. It's news. We often don't treat the gospel and the Bible as good news. Let me explain it this way. Suppose you're waiting in line at Starbucks at the front of Giant over here. And of course, you're waiting behind all these people and they're ordering things with pumps and shots and whip and this, stuff that should never get anywhere near a good cup of coffee. But you're waiting in line as all this nonsense is going on. And while you're waiting in line, somebody runs through the front door and they say, I've got good news. You won't believe it. The best news ever. What in the world's a person talking about? Well, you don't know yet. Maybe it's a father who just came from the hospital and his daughter, who was near death, has suddenly been cured by a new experimental medication. The doctors have been working, and he's bursting through. Can't wait to share with everybody the good news. Or maybe it's somebody bursting through, doesn't think you know about the Eagles' win yesterday. And now he's talking about who are we going to play, the 49ers or the Cowgirls? We're not sure, right? <laughs> um, and so good, 
Now, whenever you have news, you have to know a couple of things. Number one, whenever there's news, there's a backstory. News never occurs in a vacuum. News always has a context. So, for example, maybe if the father's daughter was healed, maybe she's had this disease and she struggled with it for years. And maybe they were given no hope, and maybe she was only given a couple years to live. And you see, there's a whole backstory to that. And unless you know something about the backstory, you can't understand why this dad is so excited. Not just a backstory. News changes things. News doesn't just give you what you should do. News changes things. So, for example, the Eagles are now waiting to see who they'll play. The Giants are figuring out where they're going on vacation and where they'll golf this week, right? The, the news changes stuff. The news is not advice, try this, go do this. News changes stuff. Oh yeah, but one more thing about news. There's always a waiting period associated with news, right? Maybe the daughter is still in the hospital. The cure hasn't fully revived her. They're going to wait until she gets released and is welcomed back into the family. We don't know who we're going to play next weekend. There's a waiting period today, and it's kind of undecided who you want to play, isn't it? Um, news changes things. News has a waiting period. News is an announcement. Now, here's a point that we often miss. News is not advice. Now, I know it's the beginning of a year. Hard to believe we're a few weeks in already. So we get lots of advice at the beginning of a new year, right? Usually the advice is about getting in shape, getting your finances in shape, losing weight, quitting this, quitting that. They're all items of advice. Now, don't misunderstand me. Some of that advice is really good, and we need to do that. Maybe in a piece of advice you're following, you're going to read through the Bible this year, read through the New Testament this year, get your finances in order, join a small group. Come to our support group, the, the uh, addiction recovery group, starting Tuesday. Lots of good advice, but news is not advice. Religion is advice. Religion tells you, do this, do this, and do this, and you'll get a result. The gospel is good news that announces Jesus did this. Now live in light of that. Now, let me, let me explain it this way because I know, feel like I'm threading the needle a little bit. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, a long time ago, said it this way, and the illustration still resonates with me. He said, suppose um, this country's king uh, led his forces out and the enemy is approaching. And uh, suppose the king defeats the enemy. The enemy is now defeated. The people back in the city, they don't know yet. So messengers are sent back to announce the good news that the king has been victorious. Now, the news is not, hey, guys, you better fight for your lives. The enemy's approaching. No, no, no. The enemy's already been defeated. The news is the enemy is defeated. Now, live in light of the victory. Now, the person who is getting ready to fight for his or her life and those that are living in the victory, how they live may look almost the same way. But the motivation is radically different. 
The motivation of the person living by the advice is the motivation of fear. If I don't do this, if I don't do that, if I don't do that, the enemy may come and defeat me. The motivation of the person living in light of the victorious news lives with the motivation of joy, living out the victory of the king, living out to bring pleasure and joy to the king. Notice, their actions may look the same, but under their actions, the motive is radically different. The gospel is not good advice. Do this, do this, do this, you get a good ending. The gospel is good news. Jesus has already won. Now live in light of that. Live out the values, the principles of the king. That's the news. That may seem like we're splitting hairs. That is a major discrepancy that we need to live on the good news side, not the good advice side. Well, the next thing that we see in these verses is that, um, oh, well, let me point this out. <laughs> Some people have asked, well, where's gospel in our three relationships? Well, let me tell, you, tell it to you like this. The gospel is not one of the three circles. It's not the fourth circle. In fact, the gospel is kind of like, in my mind, the little yellow triangle in the middle. The gospel isn't one of the three or one additional three. The gospel is the center. The gospel empowers the three circles. The gospel is kind of like the axis around which and, which, and the three are energized by the gospel. The gospel is the root of what's going on. It's the center. It's not one of. It's the ultimate middle that drives and gives energy to all of them. All right, but let's talk about Messiah then. Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Well, Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying Christ, right? We're used to kind of the Greek translation, Christ. Um, but here's what you have to understand. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is who Jesus is, right? Christ, Messiah, means king. In the Old Testament, there were a few different roles, a few different individuals that would be anointed. The word Messiah and Christ mean anoint. Kings were anointed to be king. Remember, David gets anointed. Um, prophets were sometimes anointed. Priests were anointed. They're, they're anointed to show God's enablement, God's empowerment to fulfill the role, Messiah. Now, it's important to know at this point that when Jesus is called Messiah, there were a whole bunch of expectations in Jesus' day. He did not come to fulfill all of those expectations. He came to fulfill the role for which he was given by God, the role he was, he was to play. He is the king, comes as the king. There were lots of expectations with that king language bumping around in people's heads that went like this. Oh, we're under the thumb of Rome. We're servants of Rome. We're slaves. And they're terrible rulers. When the Messiah comes, when the king comes, he will defeat Rome. He will bring freedom to us, and we will govern ourselves. The Messiah will be our king, and we'll all rule with him. Um, that's almost true, but not quite. You see, Jesus is the king, but he didn't come initially to defeat Rome and to start his kingdom. He came to bring that victory in another strange way that Mark will then describe in the rest of the book. So think of expectations this way. You have your expectations of Jesus. I have my expectations. And then we have what the Bible says he is, what the Bible, who, he, who the Bible says he is and what he came to do. Your expectations 
do not provide Jesus' list of, of what he should do. Your expectations do not give him the objectives on his, on his game plan. Think of it this way. You may uh, picture me or have the expectation that I am a really good auto mechanic <laughs> to the extent that you say, you know what, rather than pay these exorbitant fees at an auto repair shop, I will drop my car off at Charles' house and let him fix it. You may have in your mind the idea that, you know, Charles is really a great artist. I want a picture for my living. Or you know what? I want a mural on the side of my house. I'll get Charles to come and paint my house. Another expectation, you know, I, I just picture Charles as a great soloist. We need to get him on the worship team and get him a microphone up there. Let him sing a little bit. Um, Charles is a great landscaper. Rather than have a landscaper come in and fix it, I'm going to have Charles come. Yeah, that's, I would like to ride a backhoe, though. You don't want me in your yard, though. Here's the point. You can picture me any way you want to picture me. That doesn't mean that that's who I am and what I came to do. You may have distorted, I would venture to say, you do have distorted pictures and expectations of what Jesus came to do. That does not become his marching orders. Who is he? He's the king. He comes to present his principles. He comes to win the battle. And then he calls us to follow him. Living out that transition in relationship to God, in relationship to church, and in relationship to the world. The rhythm of the scripture says that we live our lives directed by the scripture. We live our lives directed by the Bible. Not to earn something, but in light of what has already been, been earned. Jesus, the Messiah, he comes to deliver the game plan and transform us so that we can live in light of that. Well, the other thing that verse 1 says that we kind of see unpacked here in chapter 1 is that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you look down at verse 11, the Father actually uh, reinforces that statement. So in verse 11, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, right? And we're told that a voice booms from heaven. Imagine being there, right? Jesus, as he's coming up out of the water, God booms from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Wow. Jesus needed that. And I would suspect over the next few years, he reflected on those words numerous times. I'm God's son. He loves me. He delights in me. Jesus, the son of God. Now here's another example where you have to know something about the scripture, something about the Bible that has come before. Messiah is an Old Testament deal, right? Messiah grows right out. If you don't know anything about Messiah anointed in the Old Testament, you're not going to understand who Jesus is. If you don't understand something about uh, the Old Testament, you're not going to understand anything about Son of God, and you're not going to understand what happened in the river. Now, most of us don't know the Bible real well. Therefore, we don't understand that when God booms from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with whom I'm all pleased, what he's doing is he's conflating two different verses from the Old Testament. He's not quoting one verse, right? Two different verses that are in different parts of the Bible, God links together. And those two conflated ideas become the outline for Mark's gospel now. 
And I'm going to show you the two ideas because you may not know where they come from. Here's the first one. The first part of the quote comes from Psalm 2. And you go check out Psalm 2 this afternoon. Psalm 2 is all about David rising to the throne. And as you read the psalm, you realize Psalm 2 is kind of spilling over the banks a little bit. And Psalm 2 is describing a son of David sometime in the future who will be the ultimate and perfect son of God. David is the king representing Israel, who was first called God's son. Then David becomes the representative of Israel. He become God's, becomes God's son. And every king after that, to some degree, is kind of God's son. But the point of Psalm 2 is that someday, Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, he will be God's perfect son. So let me read two verses from Psalm 2, and you'll see the first part of the quote that God says from heaven when Jesus is in the river. As for me, God speaking, I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Today, you begin the journey. There it is. You are my son. That's the first part of the quote, right from Psalm 2. This picture of Jesus as king, right? The Messiah piece. Well, where's the second half of the quote come from? There's no delighting in him there. Oh, yeah, you got to go to Isaiah 42 to find the second part of the quote. In Isaiah 42, the second part of Isaiah, that's not talking about Jesus as conquering king. That's talking about Jesus as suffering servant, right? That ends with Isaiah 53. The servant comes to take our sins. The servant comes, he's pierced for our transgressions. He's the one who pays our debt. The first of the servant songs in Isaiah is in 42, and here's how the first servant song begins. Here is my servant. No, not, not Davidic king. Not so. Here's my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. Huh. Why in the world would God boom from heaven as Jesus is beginning his ministry? You are my son, Psalm 2, conquering victorious king, and in whom I delight my servant, because God's saying, the way to this victory is not through a military army that defeats Rome. The way to this victory is through suffering and service. Right at the beginning. Now, here's the weird thing. You think the disciples would kind of get that? Who is most confused as you read through Mark? You check this out. We'll talk about a little Wednesday night. You read through Mark. Who is the most confused as you read through the gospel? The disciples. They never have a clue. Why is this? Why is this? In fact, the climax of Mark's gospel is not when the light goes on for the disciples. Here's a really weird thing. The climax of Mark's gospel is when a Roman centurion at the cross looks up right after Jesus has died and he says, truly, he is the son of God. Not on the lips of the disciples, on the lips of a Roman soldier. Why does Mark do that? Because the Jews had expectations. 
conquering king, defeat enemies, right? You're just going to walk this path. Suffering servant and conquering king go together? Yeah, you bet they go together. And if you don't have to read Mark for that only, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and read the whole Bible. The victory comes through suffering service. Interesting how it works, isn't it? Right at the beginning, Mark's kind of laying it out. Well, what does sonship mean? We talked about Jesus as being the ultimate son. Well, does Jesus then go around? For, you, you read, you check it out. Does Jesus go around for the next few years saying to everybody, I've got a father-son relationship with God and you don't? Nah, 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 nah. No. What does he do? He spends the next three years going around saying, I have a father-son relationship with God, the king of the universe, and you can too. You can have that same relationship I have. It's through me. That's why I've come. I've come as the Messiah. I've come as the son. I've come as the servant so that we can all have father-son's relationships with God. That kind of sounds like our role, doesn't it? What are we doing living out the three relationships? We're just reliving the story of Jesus as we're energized by the gospel, transformed by it. We live out that newness in those three relationships. Well, I want to end by looking at it. two things. Two things that sonship brings. Two things. Well, the first thing is um, intimacy. Intimacy. I was uh, thinking about that last night because uh, somebody kept texting my wife in the middle of the night. And I keep, and I don't, I don't have my phone next to the bed. My phone was in the kitchen turned off. I said, I'm going to do a little poll. How many of you turn off your phones at night? Raise your hand. All right, about nine of you. <laughs> How many put your phone on silent at night? All right. How many of you answer spam calls in the middle of the night? How many of you answer text messages or pick up the phone if you don't know who's calling or if it's an acquaintance? All right, next question. If it's 2.30 in the morning and you get a text or a phone call from your child, how many of you pick up the phone? Yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? Spam calls, no. Turn off your phones, you're not, yeah. It's different when your kid calls, isn't it? It's different uh, in the middle of the night, your little ones, they come in and they say, uh, Dad, I'm really thirsty. Could you get me something to drink from the refrigerator? Um, Man, how do you respond if your wife asks you at 3 in the morning, I'm really thirsty. Would you go to the refrigerator and get me something to drink? Uh, we're not going to go there. You, wives, you wouldn't do it either, right? <laughs> Jesus is saying, I've got a father-son relationship with God. And you can too. I've got an intimate relationship with God. And you can too. It's not, no, 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 no. I have it. You can't. It's I have it. And I'm preparing the same thing for you. And one other thing it brings, it brings safety, doesn't it? Now, look, I know, uh, humanly speaking, it's a pretty sobering day for kids to realize that their daddy and mommy really can't fix everything, isn't it? <laughs> Remember that day in your life when you finally realized, wait a minute. I can get in such a mess that dad can't get me out. Mom may not be able to kiss and make this boo-boo go away. 
There are no boo-boos. There are no situations. There are no sins or addictions that God himself cannot forgive and heal. There is safety in that relationship. Before we uh, came on to the platform, Wayne read a few, pass- a few verses from Matthew that say, uh, we need to ask and knock and seek, right? Ask, seek, knock. Yeah, here's the whole point of that. You ask, you knock, and you seek, and God delivers. I know I've said this before. It's, I have to remind myself. God only answers prayer in two different ways. When you pray to God, he either answers yes or better. So if you're getting what you think is a no, it's probably just a better. In my mind, I like to flip the illustrations that come right after those verses. If a son asks for a fish, would the father give him a snake? Let's reverse that. If a stupid son asks for a snake, will the father give him a snake? No, the father will give him a fish instead of a If the son asks for a rock because he's dumb as a rock, is the son going to give him a rock for dinner? No, the father is going to give him bread even though he has... God only answers prayers. Yes, or better. Just like we as parents do the same thing for our kids, right? Sometimes they ask for rocks. We shake our head no, and they scream and yell and complain, but we give them bread. They ask for snakes, and we kind of chuckle to ourselves, oh, yeah, someday you'll know, and as we give them fish. Maybe we need to take those illustrations and replay them in our minds when we pray. I think that God's either not listening or God's just being mean, and he wants to make our lives miserable. Jesus is the good news. He didn't just come to speak it. He came to live it. Notice what Mark says right at the beginning. The good news of Jesus. Jesus is the good news. The good news of Jesus. The Messiah. The victorious king. We're in that waiting period. And what should we do? We're not doing those 15 rhythms. We're not practicing the three relationships. We're not doing all that stuff to earn. We're doing it because we live out the values and the principles of the king. The king who is a servant. Who makes us sons and daughters of God. So we can live with access and intimacy and safety not just for these few years, but forever and ever. It's not a bad deal, huh? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and miracle of miracles. He included us in that story. Live it out, not to earn it, but to express it and to show your thanks to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for a story and a principle that we could not make up. We give you thanks for Jesus beyond our comprehension. He is the good news. 
He is the Messiah. He is the servant. He is the Son who makes way for all of us to be sons and daughters too. Help us to live in that, live in that access, live in that intimacy, live in that safety. Thanks, Lord, for all you've done. We pray in the Messiah, the servant, the Son's name. Amen.